Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I am so excited for us to start talking about parenting after high demand religion. And as I was sitting here and thinking about like, what is the first topic we should cover? Should we talk about boundaries? Should we talk about sex? Should we talk about, you know, any of a host of topics that we could talk about? Really what it came down to for me, the very first building block of parenting our children after leaving high demand religion. And honestly, it should have been the first building block when we were in high demand religion, but we just didn't know any better was creating emotional safety for our kids. So today we're going to be talking about how we can create an environment of emotional safety for our very young children. And next week we'll talk about creating emotional safety for our older children and teens and even young adults. Now, before we get into creating emotional safety, it helps to kind of understand the different parenting styles. So there's three different parenting styles. There's authoritarian parenting, which most of us experienced in high demand religion. I'm sure there are a few of us that had maybe some permissive parents or even authoritative parents. Those are the three styles. But authoritarian parents, they emphasize obedience to authority and external control. And there's very little input from us about how we were experiencing the parenting or what would work better for us. Many of us, if we were raised in a religion where we viewed God as an authoritarian parent and we were taught to emulate God in that way, then our parents may have really stressed obedience, um, you know, doing what they say just because and like following arbitrary rules that we might not have been told why those rules were in place or what the benefit was to us. We weren't really taught or educated about any of those rules. We were just expected to follow them as a way to respect our parents and to respect authority. And we may have been taught to do the same thing with church, right? To just obey and respect authority. I know that obedience has been lauded in the Mormon church as kind of one of the first principles of the gospel. And so children raised in this environment, they tend to struggle with maintaining a healthy sense of self. So either they resort to obedience and people-pleasing to keep themselves safe, or on the flip side of the coin, they resort to rebellion to keep themselves autonomous. These kids may struggle to make choices for themselves or exhibit self-control because they weren't given many instances in which they were able to make their own choices without big consequences. So if everyone is making the choices for you, If it's not possible for you to choose outside of the parental control without being labeled a rebel, without being labeled, you know, someone who's possessed by demons or just a bad egg, or if you're scapegoated for wanting to be autonomous, then of course, makes it really difficult to make your own choices without some sense of guilt or shame or feelings of unworthiness. Now, a few of us from high demand religion may have experienced permissive parenting 
Or there might be a lot more of us who've left high demand religion and maybe we've swung towards permissive parenting because that is human nature. Sometimes when we've experienced something with our parents, we try to do the opposite. So we may have left an authoritarian parenting style with our own parents, or maybe that's what we were engaging in when we were in high demand religion. And we may have swung to the opposite end of the spectrum, which is permissive parenting. Now, in permissive parenting, this style tends to feel very loving and accepting, but there are no boundaries. Kids are allowed to do whatever they want to do, and that can sometimes feel scary and overwhelming to a child because there are few, if any, guidelines about how to direct their lives. Now, I want you to imagine being expected to know how to direct your life and get what you want as a young child with no one teaching you what to do. So for many of us, because we had way too many rules and restrictions, we kind of open up and say, there are no boundaries here to our children. And we might say, you know, do whatever you want. You know, the world is your oyster, which yes, the world is your oyster. And yes, as you grow into an adult, you get to choose what you want to do. But when you're two years old, you don't have the ability to make wise choices for yourself. You need those first like 10 years of life to have parents guiding you and teaching you about how to keep yourself healthy, how to treat other people, how to get the sleep that you need, how to take care of yourself. We don't come with these things hard baked into our DNA. We need someone to kind of mirror for us how to live and function as a healthy adult. And so in permissive parenting, the kids in this style, they miss out on some of that. They miss out on some of the social cues of learning that other people have boundaries and that they can have boundaries. They miss out on learning that we eat vegetables and we make sure that we're getting enough protein and we make sure that we are you know, hydrating ourselves because that's how we take care of our bodies. They miss out on learning how to manage their time and that, you know, we go to sleep at certain times and wake up at certain times so that our bodies can be healthy and get enough sleep. So without those boundaries, without someone teaching kids why we make the choices we do and how our bodies work and why we need sleep and water and healthy food and exercise and why we need to go to work or go to school or do our schoolwork and why there are rules about not hitting your sister or running out into the street. When we don't nurture those boundaries, when we don't teach why those things are in place, then children in these permissive households, they struggle a little bit. They might have higher self-esteem. So studies have shown that kids raised in permissive households have higher self-esteem than those raised in authoritarian households. Authoritarian households studies have found are kind of the worst for kids' self-esteem. So yes, permissive parenting does lend itself to higher self-esteem for kids. However, kids raised in this environment, they tend to struggle with impulse control and time management simply because kids in this environment, in a permissive environment, if they demand a cookie, are going to be given a cookie. If they don't get their way, they often will throw a tantrum when they're very young children. And, you know, when they're not taught how to comfort themselves, 
And when they're not taught how to deal with disappointment, because we don't always get what we want, when they're not taught how to respect other people's boundaries, that's Johnny's truck. Johnny doesn't want to share his truck right now. And so we can be sad about that. We can feel disappointed about that, but we don't get to take Johnny's truck. And even if we throw a tantrum, we don't get to take Johnny's truck. We can't make Johnny share with us, especially if, you know, that's Johnny's special truck and he doesn't share with anyone and that's okay. So kids in this place may sometimes be pacified by getting what they want. And when they don't get what they want, they have a really difficult time struggling with other people's boundaries. They have a really difficult time dealing with disappointment and they don't know how to you know, manage those emotions. And they may also struggle with time management because they've had nobody teach them like, okay, in the morning, here's our morning routine. We get up and we go to the bathroom and we brush our teeth and then we put on clothes and we come downstairs and we have breakfast. And then after breakfast, we, you know, whatever it is that you do, because they haven't been taught how to move through life in an organized way, they can sometimes really struggle with time management. And because they struggle with these two things, they can also struggle to achieve the things that they want in life. And they may be less able to compromise in relationships. And like we said, deal with disappointment. They may be less able to give and take because they might be used to just worrying about themselves. And they might be used to just getting their way a lot of the time. So they may struggle with the mutuality component of relationships of, you know, I give a little and you give a little. They may feel like, no, people are supposed to give to me all of the time. Now, like I said, these two parenting styles are often presented as opposite sides of a parenting coin that you can either be authoritarian or you can be permissive. And like all things that are presented as binaries, actually, that is not the truth. There's a whole spectrum in the middle called authoritative parenting or democratic parenting. Now, for me, I feel like the term authoritative parenting, because I use two terms, authoritative parenting and democratic parenting, and I feel like they're a little bit different. For me, the term authoritative parenting, I feel like best describes what we're aiming for with very young children, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And these kids need a kind, benevolent teacher in their lives while they learn the basics of being a human being. They need someone who supports their ability to make choices, but teaches them or gives them options that still keep them safe and healthy. So instead of forcing the kid to sit at the table until they eat their broccoli, like an authoritarian parent might do, and instead of allowing them to only eat cookies three meals a day, like a permissive parent might, an authoritative parent might give their kids choices between like carrots or broccoli for their dinner. Like, what would you like tonight? Would you like to eat carrots or would you like to eat broccoli? They're giving their kids the ability to practice making choices without being overwhelmed. They're giving them options between healthy choices and their kids get to decide what they would like. Would they like to wear their coat? Or would they like to carry their coat as we go on a family sledding trip? Would they like story time or singing time tonight? Do they want mom or dad to clip their toenails? Now, in the last episode, Kevin mentioned that the goal is to eventually move from the role of authority we held in our very young child's life into a role of consultantship 
as our children become older teens and early adults. It's an inverse relationship. So when they're really, really, really young, like think about a newborn, we're not only needed for emotional support, but physical support. They need us for everything. So when they first come out of the womb, we have full control over their lives. They can't eat without us. They can't change their clothes or move around. They need us to be in tune to their needs and provide for them. They need us to protect them from danger and harm. In fact, during this stage, this is how we begin to lay a foundation of emotional safety for them in our relationship. When they cry, we respond. We're curious and empathic about their experience. Are they crying because they're in pain? Are they uncomfortable? Are they hungry, lonely, afraid? Are they overstimulated? Responding with curiosity and trying on solutions, we're building trust with this infant, this nonverbal human being that isn't able to express what they're feeling and what they need with anything other than cries. And it creates this sense of, I'm safe here. I can get my needs met. I have power in my life. Now, they might not be able to move or change their own clothes or feed themselves, but they can communicate with their cries. I need something and you respond and that creates trust and it helps them feel powerful and like, okay, I can make things happen. I can trust myself in this world. It's so important that we treat our child's feelings like they're valid even before they can verbalize what their feelings are and why they're feeling them. So do we respond when they're happy and curious as well as when they're angry or sad? Is it okay for them to feel all of their emotions? And are we curious about those? Do we connect with them? Are we interested in them? And can we help them verbalize what they're seeing and feeling and experiencing? If they're laughing, are we labeling those things like, oh, you're so happy. Look at you. Or, oh, you're really excited when they get really excited about something. Can we say, oh, yeah, that really made you sad? or angry, or frustrated, can we start to give them language for what they're feeling? They may not be able to verbalize it, but we're helping them make sense of these big feelings that they're feeling in that little body and helping them make sense of the world. The more we engage and respond at this stage, the more we communicate the message of, I see you, I think you're worthwhile, you can trust that I'm going to notice you and respond to you, you can trust that your needs will be met and you can trust that I will care for you. And we're setting the stage for them to feel this throughout their adult lives. People will care for me. Maybe not everyone, right? We might not be everyone's cup of tea, but we're teaching them that there is someone who will care for them, who will see them, who will recognize them and respond to them and that their needs will be met. Maybe not by everybody, but there will be people who will do that for them, who they can ask those things of and that you know they are worthy of receiving those things. Before we go any further, just a quick note, if your children are already past the stage and you weren't able to create a consistent sense of emotional safety for them for whatever reason, maybe you had postpartum depression, maybe you were going through the trauma of leaving the church, maybe you were going through a divorce, maybe you were sick, there's a whole host of things that can go on, right? Maybe you had a whole bunch of kids already and you were overwhelmed. It's okay. There's no such thing as a perfect parent 
and our efforts to give our kids an emotionally safe home is not an all or nothing thing. It's not like, oh, I messed up when they were infants and so it's over. That's it. We get to be human too as parents. We get to grieve and go through depression and heal from trauma and all the things. We just keep learning and trying. It's all we can do. We cannot provide our kids with a perfect childhood. We talk about what we're aiming for so that we can, you know, do our best to try to provide them with stability and to respond and to be there and to create emotional safety for our infants. And if we didn't, now we try at whatever stage they're in. Cut yourself a break. You are human. You're doing the best you can. And that's all you can do. The kinder you can be to yourself about your human experience, the more you're practicing the ability to be kind to your kids for them having their human experience. We're all just imperfect humans doing our best to relate with one another. Now, as our children move into toddlerhood and young childhood, we're going to be releasing a little bit more control. So remember, as they age, our control diminishes. We're trying to teach our kids how to be in control of themselves and to relinquish more and more of those choices to them as they get older and older. But they do need a lot of that guidance and those boundaries right at the beginning. And in fact, when your kids become toddlers, they are exploring all of the boundaries. If infanthood is about realizing like I am safe and I can trust that people will take care of my needs and be there for me. Toddlerhood is about finding where the boundaries are. The testing of boundaries is not only age appropriate, but it is necessary for them to learn about their own boundaries. Children at this age are sponges. They're so curious. They want to know about everything and use that to your advantage as you're setting boundaries with them Explain why those boundaries are there and be as kind and clear as you can be. So, for example, like you might say to your kid who wants to run into the street or like keeps chasing a ball out there, you might say, we can't play in the street. You can't go past the curb. This is the boundary right here where the curb ends and the street begins. You cannot go past this point. And if your ball goes out into the street, you can't go out and get it because cars drive here and they can hurt us really badly if they can't see you and you're so small right now and you're hard for the drivers in the car to see. And if your ball goes into the street, if your toy is out there and you need to go out there to get something, come get mommy or daddy and we'll come with you. So you're not telling them you can't go out there ever. You're saying if something is out there that you need to get, come get daddy and mommy and we'll go with you. Now, If your child continues to run into the street, you might say, if you run into the street again, we'll have to take a break from playing outside. So you've set the expectation because this is the process of setting boundaries, right? You set the expectation. You let them know what is and isn't okay. If they go into the street again, you've told them what will happen. Now, when they inevitably try again because they're toddlers, and remember, it's their job to push the boundaries. Toddlers are not acting up when they push the boundaries, when they shout no, when they say, I do it, when they, you know, you know exactly what happens. You look at a toddler and you say, "Uh uh-uh, we can't do that. And they look at you as they do it again. And you're like, oh my gosh, child, you are pushing my patience. 
But that's exactly what toddlers are supposed to do. They're supposed to push the boundaries because they're trying to discover where the limits are. They're trying to discover what the container is, where the safety is, and they're trying to figure out that they're a distinct individual separate from mom and dad. Up until toddler years, kids see themselves as a part of mom or dad. They don't really have a distinct identity. But into the toddler years, they are really distinguishing themselves. They're finding their autonomy. And so they are going to push boundaries like nobody's business. Now, are there times that we just let it go? Of course. If they say no, we can deal with no. No is okay. It's all right to say no. When they are unhappy about something, that's also okay. We can give them lots of choices too. We can say, oh, you don't want to wear the red shoes today. What would you like to wear instead? We can figure out what they would like. But if it's a matter of safety or health, like we do have to eat vegetables. We do have to play in the yard, not in the street, because you know there's dangers that come along with that. We do have to wear pants to the grocery store. We can't go buck naked to the grocery store. Things like that. So when they inevitably try to run into the street again, and you've already set the expectation, and you've already told them what will happen if they do it again, you don't lecture them or yell at them. There's no need to. You've already explained yourself. You can just ask them, would you like to walk inside, or do you want me to carry you inside? And if they won't walk inside, you simply pick them up and gently and kindly carry them in. Now, they'll have feelings about this. And this is wonderful. They may be angry, embarrassed, frustrated, sad. All of that is okay. They may express these feelings by crying or yelling, and that's okay too. We empathize with what it feels like to really want to do something and not be able to do it. We all know what that feels like, and it sucks. That's totally valid, and it's also totally part of life. There are going to be times that we really want something, and it doesn't happen, and we're disappointed. Or we can't have something and we're disappointed. We've all cried or screamed over something that we really wanted and couldn't do. We don't have to fix their feelings. We acknowledge them. We label them. We validate them. We're curious about them. Their feelings make sense. And we offer to hold or comfort them if that's something that would help them or to give them space to process if that works better for them. And let them know you're always there to love on them if they want it or need it. So if you have a kid like I do who likes space when they're having big feelings, letting them know, like, I I love you and I'm here for you. If you need some time to process, like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here when you want to talk about it. I'm curious and I'm interested. You take all the time you need and I am right here. So learning what works and what doesn't work for your kid is part of this process as they're toddlers. Now, sometimes toddlers will express their feelings by hitting or kicking or biting. And this is also age-appropriate, boundary testing, I guess you might say, but it is not okay, right? We can't hurt people because we're angry. We might want to. That part of our brain that kicks in, the amygdala, with the fight or flight response might say, oh, I just want to punch that person. That's the fight response. Or I want to bite them or kick them. So we have to help them learn how to manage that part of themselves. We can explain that it's okay to feel angry 
and we can express our feelings with our words, but not our fists or our feet or our teeth. So you can let them know that these things hurt you and you'll have to put them down if they keep trying to hurt you. And if they continue, you just, again, you don't yell at them or lecture them. You've already told them, ouch, that hurts me. You can feel angry, but you can't hit me or kick me or bite me. And if they do it again, you just put them down and let them know you're happy to pick them back up if they won't hit you or bite you again. And if they do, you put them back down and you repeat as many times as you need to until they stop hitting or biting. Remember, they are going to test your boundaries like it's their day job because it is. With toddlers, testing your boundaries is what they're supposed to do developmentally at this age. They do not understand the world. They don't understand boundaries until they've tested them. They're looking for those boundaries. They're pushing against them. They want to know that they're safe. And boundaries, even for adults, when we are in relationships where there are clear boundaries, we feel safer. We're able to relax. We know that we can be fully and completely ourselves because the other person will let us know if we've crossed a boundary. They'll let us know if something's okay or not okay, so we don't have to worry about whether they're keeping that to themselves or not. All humans do better when there are boundaries. We all do better when we know where the limits are, when those limits are clear, and your kids are trying to find where those boundaries are. So they're not being little punks. They're not possessed by the devil. They are not demon children. They are toddlers, and they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do developmentally to figure out who they are, where they begin and end, where other people begin and end, what parameters you're willing to put around them to keep them safe. They're learning like, oh, mom and dad care about me. They don't want me to die. That's why this curb is here and I'm not allowed to cross it. My parents care about my health and safety. They care about what happens to me. It helps them feel secure. They've done studies that have shown that kids without boundaries feel less safe than kids that have some boundaries. Now we can take that too far, right? Into the authoritarian realm where all there are are rules. And remember, rules and boundaries are not synonymous, but all there are are rules and everything's set for us. And that's not healthy either. We're looking for that place in the middle. Another cool thing that happens is by kindly and calmly modeling boundaries for our kids at this age, it teaches them that they can trust us to say what we mean and carry through with kindness. But I also want to make a quick note because having someone consistently day in and day out push your boundaries is enough to make you go a little bit bonkers, right? I think most parents with toddlers feel a little bit bonkers sometimes. So this age, more than any other, has the ability to test our patience and sanity. So take breaks. Tag team with your spouse and friends. Utilize a daycare if you need to, a babysitter, a nanny, an au pair. If you can afford it, it's okay to give yourself timeouts even so that you can continue to use your kind words instead of hurtful words or actions. You can even explain this to your kids as you model self-regulation. So. I remember there were several times where I was like, mommy's going to go to the bathroom and take a time out. I feel so angry and overstimulated in my body that I need to go calm down. So I would verbalize what was going on. 
I feel angry. I feel overstimulated. I need to go to a place where I'm by myself for a minute so I can calm down and I will come back. Letting your kids know that you're not abandoning them when you go to take care of yourself can be really helpful. Letting them know I will come back as soon as I'm calm, it lets them know like it's okay to go take a break from people and it's okay to go calm yourself. And when people do that, they come back. And we're going to continue to have a relationship after that. It's okay for people to go and do that. Now, if you notice yourself starting to dissociate on a regular basis, and remember dissociate means where you kind of have that like not completely connected with your body or with reality feeling. Dissociation, we often do it when we're like doom scrolling through Instagram. Maybe we completely zone out in front of the TV. Sometimes we just stare at the wall and watch the paint peel. But when you notice yourself like feeling really numb in your body, like you can't feel things and you're checking out, and it's normal for us to do this a little bit from time to time, particularly as we're healing from trauma. So if you're healing from religious trauma or childhood trauma, this may be kind of a normal part of your existence and it may be exacerbated by having young children. But if you feel yourself doing this regularly, so if it's not just happening occasionally, but it's happening all the time, please get some support. This means you need some time to calm your nervous system. You need some self-care. And you may also be triggered by your kids. Sometimes because our kids share our genetics, they sometimes have traits from our childhood that can be incredibly triggering to our own childhood trauma. There just may be personality traits and characteristics that remind us a lot of people who created childhood trauma for us. And it can be really easy to project that onto them. So if you notice yourself starting to dissociate or associate that child with your childhood trauma a lot, get some support. This doesn't make you weak or a failure in any way. It makes you an exhausted human being. And any person who has ever cared for young children full time gets it. No one's judging you who's done this before. I take that back. They might be judging you, but it's because they wish they had had the support and the presence of mind to get help and care for themselves. They pushed through it without support and they're probably not okay today. So if they're judging you, that's a them problem, not a you problem. Now, I want to just talk about a couple of really big building blocks that we've already kind of touched on before we end this podcast today about how we can create emotional safety for young children. And the first one is building trust. So I'm sure you can tell by now that one of the biggest building blocks to creating emotional safety for young children and really people of all ages is creating a sense of trust. During those first 10 years, especially kids build a sense of whether they can rely on you to be there to support them. Will you provide consistent emotional, mental, and physical necessities? Will you follow through with your promises? Will you stay out of judgment and remain curious about their experience? Will you maintain your boundaries and help them find their own? Will you be on their side when they're overwhelmed or uncomfortable or even when it might cause others to judge you as a parent? Will you protect your child's boundaries from others who might not respect them? Will you keep their confidences? In an earlier episode, we talked about Brene Brown's BRAVING acronym for building trust and B-R-A-V-I-N-G stands for boundaries reliability, accountability, 
the vault, which just means sharing only what you have permission to share about someone else's life, integrity, non-judgment, and generosity. And generosity doesn't mean just giving and giving. It means making the most generous assumptions we can about the people we're in relationship with. And Brene Brown says that these are the seven ingredients that build this sense of emotional trust, not just with us and our kids, but with us and every other human that we're trying to build a relationship with. If we want to feel safe in our relationships and like we can trust each other with our vulnerabilities, then we need to know that the other person is reliable and that we can trust them to have boundaries to tell us what is and isn't okay with them. And we need them to be accountable when they cross our boundaries or when they make mistakes. And we need to know that whatever we share with them in confidence is going to stay confidential. We need to know that they're going to live in integrity with their values, that what they tell us is important to them is important to them. So if they say, hey, this relationship is really important to me, that they're willing to do the hard stuff to improve our relationship. That means having constructive conflict conversations, that they're willing to talk about things that aren't working. They're willing to communicate instead of ghost us. They're willing to communicate instead of, you know, being passive aggressive. So integrity is being willing to do the hard stuff to prioritize what you say is most important. And then, of course, non-judgment that we're more likely, we won't be perfect at this, right? But that we're most likely to be curious about what's going on for someone instead of judgmental about it. And then, of course, the most generous assumption that we can trust the other person to make the most generous assumption about our intentions and vice versa. And particularly important for very young children is curiosity or non-judgment, right? Because curiosity and non-judgment, those are kind of synonymous. When we're being curious, it's very difficult to be judgmental at the same time. And when we're being judgmental, it's very difficult to be curious at the same time. So our kids need to know that we're going to be curious that we want to know what's going on for them. We want to understand their reality and that we're not just going to make judgments about that. And they need to know that we're reliable. Can they count on you to be there? And will you be curious about what they're experiencing and feeling instead of judgmental or withdrawn? The next really important thing for building emotional safety for young children is practicing emotional intelligence. So young children come with all the emotions and none of the understanding about what they're experiencing. Imagine how crazy that feels. I know many of you get it because when we leave high demand religion, we're almost in that like infant state where we're feeling all the feelings, but maybe we don't know what we're feeling because we've been so dissociated from those feelings for so long. We can feel like this. So we can kind of empathize with what it might be like for young children to have all of these strong emotional responses and no words for them and no understanding of what's going on. Emotional intelligence isn't something we're born with. It's something we learn from those around us, which is why many of us didn't have much of that when we were in a high demand religion kind of community because no one around us had that. There was no one to learn it from. We were taught obedience, but we weren't taught, oh, this is anger. Oh, this is resentment. 
oh, this is shame. Oh, this is grief. We weren't taught those things. And so it became really difficult for us to label and understand our experience. And that's what it's like for very young children too. So if we're parenting after high demand religion, we might still be learning how to recognize and label and validate our own feelings. And it can feel really daunting to be responsible to teach another young human how to do something we're only just learning how to do. And that's okay. So give yourself permission to learn imperfectly alongside your child. So let's say you have an instance where you yell or shout about something. Maybe that was your pattern before you started to deconstruct. But maybe you say to your kid, oh man, I just shouted because I was feeling angry. And maybe tell them what physiological things you noticed. Like my face got red, my heart started pumping fast and I felt hot inside. I guess that's what angry feels like for me. And it looked like when I shouted, you felt scared for a minute. Your eyes got big like this and you pulled away from me for a minute. Is that what you were feeling? And then let them, you know, tell you what they were feeling. Yeah. Sometimes big, loud, unexpected noises can be scary. I'm sorry I made a big, loud noise that scared you. Are you feeling scared now? Do you want to talk about what it felt like to be scared? You're getting vulnerable about what you're feeling and telling them you're normalizing. Like, I have feelings. I just did something that I wasn't super proud of, maybe with my feelings, but I recognize my feelings. I'm owning them. I'm being accountable for them. And then we go into empathy. Like, and I noticed you had a feeling about that as well. Do you want to tell me about that? And then listen, let them tell you about their experience. Get curious, ask questions, really empathize with them, help them feel heard and seen. And it's going to make it safe, not only for them to express their feelings to you and to share with you what they're feeling but also to recognize that both of you have big feelings and that, you know, sometimes we do things with our feelings that maybe is not what we hoped we would do or what we expected to do with our feelings, but we can recognize that, be accountable for it, and we can continue to move forward and we can express empathy and heal any wounds that might've happened. And then last, we've talked a little bit about boundaries, but one of the most important things we can do when our children are young, is we can model boundaries. And this is going to help so much in building emotional safety. Young childhood is a great time to start discussing and modeling bodily autonomy and personal boundaries around our bodies and boundaries around our personal property. So give kids this age a chance to decide if they want hugs, kisses, or cuddles. Do they want physical comfort when they're upset or hurt? Or do they prefer to know you're close by while they regulate themselves on their own? Knowing their bodies are their own and they get to decide who they invite for kisses and hugs and comfort can be so empowering to a young child. It also is going to set the stage for consent in their teenage years and into their young adulthood. We can also teach them about asking for consent to play with other people's belongings We can even teach them that not all things have to be shared. Maybe mom or dad doesn't want to share their makeup or their 1960s model Corvette. Sometimes people may have something we want, but they have a boundary about that property that they aren't willing to share. And that's okay. We can teach our kids that when other kids come over, 
that they can have toys they're willing to share and other toys that we put away when guests come over that don't have to be shared. We aren't required to share everything we have. And this is one of those big things we're deconstructing after high demand religion, right? Many of us were required to share not only like physical possessions, maybe we were required to share our house like we did with the missionaries when we were still active Mormon. Maybe you were required to share goods, like we were often required to bring food or other supplies from our house to meet the needs of our church congregation. But you may have also been required to share personal information. You may have been required to share information about other people. Like at BYU, if you knew that somebody was breaking the honor code and you didn't report it and someone found out that you knew and you didn't report it, you could be punished as well. Sometimes in high demand religion, we might still have an inner belief that we're supposed to share everything. And it's just not true. We're allowed to have boundaries around what information about ourselves that we share. We should definitely have boundaries about what information about others that we share. And we are even allowed to have boundaries about how much of our space, how much of our time and our personal possessions we share as well. We get to decide what's okay with us and what's not okay with us. And we can teach our kids that they can make these decisions for themselves as well. We aren't required to share everything we have. We're allowed to have boundaries around our personal property. This sets a foundation for further conversations with older kids and teens about boundaries around personal information. Like I said, when we start with, you don't have to share your truck, or you don't have to share your favorite doll, or you don't have to share your art supplies, we're also setting the foundation for, you don't have to share some of your thoughts and feelings. You don't have to share what you're worried about. People have to earn the right for you to be vulnerable with them. And you don't have to share just because they want you to. You get to decide who you share with and who you don't. And we'll talk more about that next week when we continue the conversation on creating emotional safety for our older children and our teens. Thank you so much for joining me today. And remember, we'll be having discussions about parenting over the next couple of months on our weekly podcast donor call. If you want to become a donor to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast and be included in the weekly email and call, please go to emancipateyourmind.org. Look for the box that says support the podcast and give a gift. Choose any monthly donation amount, whatever you feel comfortable donating, and you'll be included in the emails. If you want to be included ASAP, because I currently only get a list of donors from Mormon discussions at the beginning of each month please email me at terry at emancipatedcoaching.com with the subject title I donated and I'll add you to the email list as soon as possible. All of these instructions are also in the show notes. If you're driving and you're worried, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to write this all down. Go to the show notes. It's all there. We'd love to have you on the calls. Thank you again for being here today and we'll continue this discussion next Sunday.